Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my Dana Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Megillah, daf Zion, page 7. Now, this is one of those daf where we said, if only we really read every word on the daf in Talking Talmud, because that's the kind of daf it is. It's rich, it's varied, as your Dana, I think you made that point the other day, that these daf, when they are long, they really do cover a whole range of topics. So we're going to do our best to do justice here. Um, and know that we are not covering everything that we would like to. The first point I would like to read here is really about Megillat Esther itself. Amar of Shmuel Bar Yehuda, Shachalem Esther Lachachamim. Esther sent to the Chachamim, meaning the Mordechai, Mordechai, you know, of Megillat. I was one of the members of the Antiques Nesavagdol, the men of the Great Assembly, at the very tail end of them. Chachamim and said, Meaning, establish me for the generations. Something in the nature of this holiday, right? Or the the Megillah. Want there to be an, an right. There are many times I think when there's a day of Thanksgiving because somebody has been saved, or because a whole bunch of people have been saved, and that is the story of of the story of Purim. But the question of whether something is going to be instituted for the generations, as opposed to just that locale or just the next year, is always a big question. So when she says, establish me for the generations, that means that Purim should become a holiday. The Megillah should be the story that is read on the holiday, right? And it's a much bigger deal than just recognize like, oh, you know, look, there was indeed a salvation. And then we move on because, you know, as it happens, of course, throughout Jewish history, there have been many, 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 you know, terrible things happening and also many, many salvations that are not part of our calendar uh, liturgical holiday year. And she said to her, they wrote back to her, right? And they said, you do so and then you're going to get everybody to be angry. Like all the nations of the world are going to be angry because the Megillah shows that the Jews won against the non-Jews. So they're not going to be happy. She writes back to them, She says, I am already written up in the chronicles of meaning Medea and Persia, meaning writing down the Megillah, the story of Megillah Tester, is not going to tell the world anything they don't know from their own non-Jewish chronicles. And the, you know, of course, we know that this is exactly what happened. Now, there's a few different versions of this basic exact story that takes place, you know, where in a different version, she says, she wrote to the Chachamim and said, as opposed to meaning write me for the future generations. And then to make sure that the book is part of the canon, the canon being the books of Tanakh, there's a big debate whether the book of Esther would be included in Tanakh. It's a very late book, first of all. There's no mention of God in the book. Right, meaning not in any direct way. There's obviously interpretations that say things like every time it says Amelech, it's an indirect reference to to God. But as a basis, you know, for what goes into holy writ, it's a kind of a a tricky thing whether it's going to make it in or not. And so that's that's the next thing that I want to talk about, which is you know if you skip down a bit on the page after there's all, again all this discussion about the writing of the Megillah Tester, then we have a statement from Amar. I'm Rev Yehuda, I'm Shmuel. So Rev Yehuda said that Shmuel said, Esther eina mitama et hayadayim. Now we've talked about this concept once long ago. I, I wish I remembered what daf or even the context, but the issue is whether the book itself renders 
It's called render the hands impure. What does this mean? Anything that is considered Kodesh, anything that was going to be sacred, was going to be, will then make the hands impure. In the context, of the, the underlying meaning is whether um, a Kohen could come to handle these books, meaning the scrolls, that were kept in the Beit HaMikdash near the Truma, near the grain that was Kodesh. And so then if they're, and that's, that becomes exactly the, the tricky situation here. So I'm going to continue to read the Gemara here a little bit, but the basic line is something that renders the hands impure, something that it means that is it is considered Kadosh, it is considered, and it will be included in the canon of the what came later to be called, you know, the 24 books of, of Tanakh. So the Gemara goes on to say, meaning if when Shmuel says that the book that Esther does not render the hands impure, does that mean that he thought that it wasn't written with any divine inspiration? Right, Baruch HaKodesh. Vahamar Shmuel, didn't Shmuel himself say, Esther Baruch HaKodesh Nemra? Isn't that statement ascribed to Shmuel? So do we have him now contradicting himself? Meaning, he says it was said Baruch HaKodesh for the sake of reading the book, but not for it to be written down, meaning the scroll is not what has the sanctity as much as the public reading of it. Um, so the Gemara goes on, meaning we've got an objection to, objection to this from Abraita, and it goes on to explain exactly how the rest of the canon kind of comes to be. Rabbi Meir Omer Kohelet the book of Ecclesiastes does not render the hands impure, meaning it's not considered holy. He says, there's a dispute over whether Shi'ar Shirim should be in the canon, whether it will be considered holy. Um, just you know, a brief word. Kohelet, of course, is considered I don't know existential angst. You know, there's a lot of existential angst in Kohelet, so perhaps, and also a lot of you know um, philosophy. I would say that kind of runs counter to a certainly to a simple faith. Um, and then Shi'ar Shirim is you know erotic love poetry, and we understand it to be, or Chazal themselves understood it to be. Um, uh, a parable for the love between God and B'nai Israel, but the words themselves are pretty uh, direct. So yet we could understand why that would be a, a excuse me, a dispute whether it would be included in what's considered holy. So Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Meir have opposite approaches to these two books. Rabbi Shimon Omer Kohelet Mikulei Beitshamai Umechamorei Beit Hillel so Rav Shimon says that the way they decided about Kohelet is amongst the leniencies of Beit Shammai and the stringencies of Beit Hillel, because usually we think Beit Hillel is more lenient and Beit Shammai is, is more harsh, but Beit Hillel is the one who says that it renders the hands impure, and according to Beit Shammai, it does not. So then we say that the book of Ruth, the book of the Shirashirim, Song of Songs, and Esther all render the hands impure, meaning lo and behold, they are kadosh, they are included in the canon. Who da'abar to Rabbi Yoshua, meaning when Shmuel said this earlier, he's saying it in accord with Rabbi Yoshua, and Rabbi Yoshua's position, he was he was talking about the position of Rabbi Yoshua, which Rabbi Yoshua says that it's not kadosh. But Shmuel himself, it seems, we come back around to say that it was. Um, and then, again, there's more on this debate and the discussion and, and to what what is the fixing of the canon? At the end of the day, as we all know now, obviously, all of these books are included in the canon. Um, Esther is considered to be written Baruch HaKodesh, 
you know, um, with this divine inspiration, um, and and the this message of Kitvuni Lidorot that she should be written down for the generations and Purim should be a a long lasting holiday is taken seriously to the extent that later and elsewhere we'll find statements that say, you know, in in the time of the Messiah or whatever, down the road in some new future experience, all the other holidays will go away, but Purim will still be around. So that kind of like is a tribute to to her conviction that this should be for the generations. So, I, you know, I think it's interesting, again, that this is a rabbinic holiday they're turning towards text to discuss how we know that this was actually established for forever, because I think they need to give it a little bit more than just saying the rabbi said this was a holiday that we were supposed to do. So here it makes sense that they're really using text in order to. Um, I think that makes sense. I think also it's for me, it's very interesting to see how it develops in terms of. At least let's, let's trust the historicity of it, right? That, that there was a request from Esther that they, you know, implanted into the calendar. And lo and behold, that was in the calendar. You know, that, that establishing the holiday came at the behest of the people involved in the salvation. Um, so I'm going to move on now. There's some nice perm stuff here. And the first is a discussion uh, that talks about So the Gemara now brings a Brisa, which is going to really explain what this mitzvah is and what the obligation is on perm itself. Tani Rav Yosef, so Rav Yosef taught in Abraisa, Umishloch Manot right? So the Pasuk says um, in uh, in Esther, uh, Megillat Esther, chapter 9, verse 22, uh, right, that portions to one another. So two portions to one man. They also sent Matanot Levionim and gifts to the poor. Two gifts to two people. Um, and so this is like a very, very famous teaching about sort of what's your actual obligation. And what one thing that's very clear is, is that you have to give tzedakah, right, the matanot levionim, to more people, to two people, as opposed to the mishalak manot. And, you know, I think many people visit communities where people have lamented, although I do feel in the last few years it has, you know, sort of cut down the crazy Mishloach Manot that people used to send, but, you know, that's really what the emphasis is supposed to be. Um, and then the Gemara sort of tells some stories about, well, what were the Mishloach Manot that people actually sent, right? So Rabbi Yehuda Nisiya Sader Leila Rabbi Oshia, so Rabbi Yehuda Nisiya sent to Rabbi Oshia, Atma de Agla Tilsa, the thigh of a calf born third to its mother, Garba de Hamra and a bottle of wine, Shlach Le Rabbi Oshia sends, sends back to him the next message, right? Kanta banu rabbeinu, right? Our teacher, by giving us these gifts, you fulfilled the mitzvah of mishloch manot ishleir matanot levionim, right? Because um, those were basically the, the two, um, the, two um, uh, the two items here, right? He sent a calf's thigh and a bottle of wine. Um, and then they have this whole thing with rabbah, right? Rabbah shadr le limari bar, uh, Mar Biyadabai. Rabbi sent to with a baye to send to Mari Barmar, uh, Malay Taska de Kabsha, a basket filled with dates, Malay Kasa Kimcha Dabshuna, and a cup of flour roasted wheat. Now, as soon as you read it, you're like, huh, that doesn't sound like a good Mishalach Manot that I would want to get. And therefore, Amar Le Abaye, Abaye basically says to Rabbi, Hasta Amar Mari, Mari's not going to say, Il Chilka Malke Lahabe, comes the king to Kula Matsbari. 
Does he not take the basket and uh, that it used to feed his animals? Basically, it's talking about it down it off its neck. In other words, you didn't send anything so nice to Mari. How does Charlotte Inu? Right, so Mari sends back to Rabba. Malay Tasca de Zangivila, a basket filled with ginger. Malay Casa de Pilpalta to Aricha, and a cup filled with long peppers. Amar Abaye, and Abaye says, Hasta Amar Mar. Right now, Mar's going, now Rabba's going to say, I sent him sweet foods. He sent me more bitter ones. And then Amar Abaye says, When I left Rabba's house to go to Mari, basically, I was full. But when I got there, they brought me 60 plates with 60 types of cooked food. So also, it's not just that Rabba should have sent something nicer. Look at whose house he's sending this to. Somebody who greets a guest with 60 types of food. Right? And I ate 60 pieces. The last dish they, right, the last one they gave, they called it, some English translation say it was like a pot roast, but some type of very good meat. And after, after eating it, I wanted to eat the plate, right? In other words, when you eat something that you like so much, right, it, it, it makes you want to eat actually more. Amar Baye, right? So Baye said about this, this is what people say, right? A poor person um, doesn't know when he's hungry. Inami, or also, right? In other words, like Abaye didn't know how hungry he was going to be. Or Inami, the other one is, a room can always be found in someone's stomach for something else that's sweet, right? There's always room if it's something that you really want to eat. And then finally closes with Abaye Bar Abin, Barav Khanina Bar Abin, they would exchange their, uh, you know, so in other words, their pseudo. So one would do it one year and one would do it um, the next year. So I just thought this was a nice thing. You know, it, it start with, I think this is also the emphasis of that Mishloch Manot is really meant to be part of your tsuda. Um, and, and that's also a, a, a piece here that's sort of, it's not explicitly said, but that's sort of what you send to the other person is actually supposed to be used for their su'uda on perm itself. Um, and again, because I think this is like rabbinic law, there's not a lot of halacha to discuss here. So instead, they're going to use stories to illustrate the point. Um, yes, I actually like when the stories illustrate the point, and I think that it lines up very well with Purim. Here's another story, which happens to be truly astounding. Once again, I want to make sure that I have the right place. Okay, here's another story that's kind of attached to the the halacha or non-halacha, as you want to say. A person is obligated to become intoxicated on Purim. This, of course, is from a practical and halachic perspective, uh, a conundrum, right? And is anyone truly required to get drunk? And people answer, oh, you could you could understand what's the what's the per- the principle here. Until a person does not know to distinguish between the cursing of Haman and the blessing of Mordechai. And we could say, oh, somebody's asleep or, you know, drink a little bit more than you might usually drink. And of course, some people take this to the nth degree and get, you know, rip-roaring drunk. Um, Whether there's a requirement for that seems rather difficult from within the halakhic literature. But in any case, what happens is we have this story to illustrate it. Rabbi Rabbi Zera, Avdu Sudut Purim Bahadeh Hadadeh. So Rabbi and Rabbi Zera, they, they were having their Sudat Purim, the, the, the Purim feast, together. 
They together also got drunk. Come, Rabba. So Rabba got up, and he killed Rabbi Zera. The next day, meaning he's, the next day, Rabbi Zera has kind of gotten sober. I'm sorry, um, Rab has gotten sober. He understands what's happened. And he, you know, come, he, he asks God for Rachamim. And God revives him, meaning he brings him back to life. Lishana, the next year, So the next year, Rabbi says to Rabbi Zera, Oh, look, let's go do our Purim Suda together. And Rabbi Zera says back, We can't rely on miracles. He says, not every, not every hour do we, do we have a miracle. Meaning, I'm not looking forward to doing that again. No, I'm not going to have your my porn feast with you. You killed me last year. So there's something very, I would say, almost nonchalant in the way the Gemara presents this story of like he he got up and he killed him, and then and the next day he revived him. You know, he had him revived. Um, and and yet I think that there's a, I mean, we could delve into that story alone for a very long time about. What is it? You know what's what's really happening here in there? What? How could it happen that he killed him? What was? What were the emotions that were riding high? What happens the following year? Do they stay friends? You know, it's a really complicated story in a few nonchalant lines that basically, you know, kind of a little bit punch Rob in the face and say like, from Ribby's there in a in a very nice way of you know, no, I'm not doing perm with you again. It's really a crazy story, and I. To me, what's interesting about it is, is that, you know, everyone always quotes this Adzalo Yadza thing, but I think the Gemara kind of reverses it by having this story right afterwards, sort of saying, mm, maybe that's not actually something that you should do. So I feel like you can't really quote the Adzalo Yadza without this part, but nobody ever talks about this story with Rabbi Zero. But 100%, I think the crafting of this daf is like an object lesson on that claim of everybody's obligated to, to go get drunk. Um, really? Do you really think it's a good idea? Because this is what happened. Don't do it. Right. 100% but, but, I agree but with But you. no one quotes that part. That's what's so crazy. Um, okay, and then really quickly to, to sort of uh, wrap up this episode, there's two very short missions here. Since the previous mission that we were in the middle of discussing talked about the difference between Adarish and Adarshani, the Mishnah gets on a crazy good tangent now, which is they're going to go through other things to discuss what are differences between. So the first one is, The only difference between Shabbat and Yom Tov is in regard to basically food preparation, right? That we know that you are allowed uh, to um, uh, to prepare food. Read from the Gemara, but they get into a whole machlokas about the machshire ochel nefesh, right? the food, like things you would like preparation that you would do for food uh, preparation, right? So in other words, what you're allowed to do on Yom Tov is food preparation that is basically involved directly with preparing the food itself, slaughtering, cooking, things like that. But things that have to do with like the, the, the pre thing that you would have to do, like let's say you needed to sharpen the knife in order to do shrita, that's where there's a machlok as whether or not you're allowed to do that on Yom Tov itself or not. So that's basically what the Gemara talks about there and, and goes through a little bit there. A machlok is between the Tanakhama and Rabbi Yehuda. And then we get to the second Mishnah. So the only difference between Shabbat and Yom Kippur, and this is a very interesting Mishnah. And here what they're referring to is really 
the penalties, like the punishment that you get on Yom Kippur for people who don't observe Shabbat and Yom Kippur, not talking about the restrictions, right? We know that the restrictions are very different, that it basically, if one violates Shabbat intentionally, right? And what that means is, is that you were warned publicly and all these types of things and witnesses come and basically testify that you violated it, you would get, you you, you are killed, but it's, uh, you know, but it's be, be a day at time. It's going to be by the Beitim. Whereas for Yom Kippur, right, it's done by curry. Now, again, we don't know exactly what curry is, but it's some type of sort of like uh, cutting off. So the idea is, is that, yes, they are both severely punished, but one is supposed to be sort of like punished by humans and one is really curry is going to be meted out, obviously, um, by God. Now, one of the things that's interesting in the Gemara here, which is a very important, I'm not going to go through the whole Gemara, but there's an important halachic principle just to pay attention to here, um, which is the idea that basically like you sort of can't get two um, punishments over one sin. And so they quote a Mishnah here that says, right, we learn elsewhere in a Mishnah, kol chayave kritut shalaku nifteru miyadeh kritatan. All those who are liable to kares, right? We basically could have gotten kares, but then Malchus was given to them by the court. They actually ended up getting lashes. They're exempt from their kares, right? And so part of what this is, is that basically you can only get one punishment. Um, and so they quote here, Pasuk Shanamar, Benikla Acha right? Your brother will be sort of, I guess it means like demeaned, uh, before your eyes this is a pasuk in Devarim chapter 25 of verse 3 the whole pasuk says it's describing the process of 40 lashes he may strike he shouldn't do more lest he strike many more lashes than these and your brother will be demeaned before your eyes meaning the person who gets the malkud it, it, it's embarrassing and therefore it says once he's been flogged, he's like your brother. In other words, even though he lost his status of like being your brother uh, by by having courage, once he's flogged, right, once he gets these lashes, it sort of reinstates his brotherhood and therefore he doesn't get courage anymore. Divrei Rabbi Hanina Ben Gamliel. So I just want you to pay attention to this little thing. And we're going to see the reverse later on in other Gemaras where we've seen this that if you're Chayab, uh, like let's say you violated Shabbat and you are supposed to be killed by the Beitin, you actually don't bring a Korban Chatas. So there is this sort of theme in Halacha, you just get one punishment for whatever it is that you did. You don't really get ever two punishments. So I just wanted to point out that quick piece of the Gemara, but two very interesting Mishnahs. Again, they seem to be like really, they're not really about Purim or Megillah at all. Um, and one of these like sort of interesting tangents the Mishnah takes at, while we're on the topic of comparing and contrasting two things, so we'll talk about other areas in halacha where things are either similar or different. That's our daft discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our, face, on our Facebook page and tell us what you think about this stuff. Uh, thank you to Rebbe Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.